Let's turn over to Genesis. Get right into the Word of God tonight. Genesis chapter number 37. And if you've not been with us, I feel like it's been a long time since we've met. Last week we had the harvest party, and the week before that we were privileged to hear from one of our missionaries. And so it's been uh, two weeks and since I've been speaking to you, but I'm, I'm sure that you've appreciated the break. And so <clears throat> I feel like we haven't really got into the book of uh, Genesis, into the life of Joseph. We've really just kind of scratched the surface. And so tonight I'm excited to finally get into some serious dilemmas and adversity that Joseph has to face. And so Genesis chapter number 37, we're going to read a large portion of scripture. Is that okay? Is it all right if we read some Bible tonight? Uh, Genesis chapter number 37, look with me at verse number 12. We'll read down through the end of the chapter. And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said, uh, he said to him, here, here am I. Verse 14, And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, to see whether it be well with the, uh, thy brethren and well with, thy, uh, with the flocks, and bring uh, me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And behold, they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see that we will become uh, uh, what will become of his dreams. And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him. That he, might rid, uh, that, uh, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. And it came to pass when Joseph uh, was come unto his brethren that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread. And they lifted up their eyes and looked. And behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from uh, Gilead, um, Gilead with their camels bring, uh, bearing spices and balm and myrrh going to, carry down to, uh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his, bo- uh, conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let no, uh, not our hands be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brethren were content. Then there passed by Midianites, merchantmen, uh, Midianites merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. And Reuben returned unto the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in, uh, was not in the pit. And he rent his clothes, and he returned unto his brethren and said, The child is not, and I, whither shall I go? And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goat and dipped the coat in the blood And they sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it and said, It's my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put on sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, and he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I will not go down into the grave unto my son's mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Verse 36, And the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. How many of you have been here so far uh, through this series? You've been here every single, every single night. How many of you, this is your first night? Just a couple of you. Awesome. So we've been going through the life of Joseph, and uh, <clears throat> this was the first message that I preached to you, and it's really the theme of the message, uh, the theme of the series. Joseph is a story of God's sovereignty. So we've been kind of going through and looking at the life of Joseph uh, in the book of Genesis, really chapter number 37 all the way through Genesis chapter number 50. And so we've highlighted some different things, and we've been learned some things, taught some things. And so tonight, in light of our text in this series in the life of Joseph, I'd like to talk to to you tonight for just a few few moments about this topic, overcoming betrayal. 
overcoming betrayal. Let's say a word of prayer and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for your many blessings. Thank you for the opportunity to break from the week. No doubt we're busy, Lord. Uh, we're coming into the holiday season and things seem to pick up around the holiday season and uh, very busy with different things to do. We've still got school, we've got jobs to tend to, and now we're thinking about different things that we're going to be doing with family. And uh, Lord, we're coming to the end of the semester. There's a lot of busyness and that's okay, Lord, but I pray that uh, you just help us to be mindful of your goodness to us. It's uh, November, a time to be thankful, time to reflect and remember the things that you've done for us and the things that you've provided for us. And Lord, as, as you've been faithful to us, we've been faithful to you in breaking from the week to just uh, to come and spend some time in your word and in prayer, Lord. I pray that tonight as we're taught the word of God, I pray that you'd speak to me, speak through me. I pray that they'd hear a message from you, not from me, and I pray that tonight you'd cause us uh, to respond to the truth of your word. Uh, Joseph has so many things to teach us, but most importantly, it's a picture of what's to come in the New Testament through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we're thankful for your goodness to us, thankful for your grace. I pray that you just help us and uh, lead, guide, and direct us in all that we say and do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to tell you a story. <clears throat> It's 1994, the year's 1994, and it's in the jungles of Africa. And there's this king that is uh, in the process of training up his son to take the kingdom. And so he's training up his son, he's teaching him different things. He's a young, a young guy, and so he's teaching him some different things, different life lessons that he's going to need to know about running the kingdom. And through all of these, different, uh, these uh, different learning opportunities, they face some adversities through uh, family, close members of the family, namely his uncle, the king's uh, brother, his uncle. And uh, the king's uncle felt like he deserved the kingdom. The king's uncle, uncle felt like he was uh, more qualified to run the king, kingdom, especially more than his son, but even more so than the king. And so what he does is he's always uh, passive-aggressive in sharing his disapproval for uh, the, the prince that's, that's supposed to take the kingdom. And so one day, he's out with his nephew. The uh, uncle is out with his nephew. And they're in, this, um, they're in this ravine. They're in this canyon. And uh, the king is off doing kingly things. And so what the king, uh, excuse me, what the uncle does is he begins to kind of deceive. Some of you are smiling. He begins to deceive and he begins to manipulate the young prince and tell him uh, some different things. And so he leaves him. Uh, in the middle of the conversation there in the middle of the ravine and he goes up to the top of a hill and he goes up to the top of the hill leaving the young prince there in uh, the uh, ravine there in the canyon and so he goes to the top of the hill where a herd of wildebeest are waiting and so he devises this plan and him and his heckling friends get together and they uh, stir up some, uh, they stir up the wildebeest and the wildebeest begin to go downward down into the ravine and uh, they form a stampede and they're headed right for the young prince and the young prince realizes what's going on and he tries to escape but realizes that he can't outrun the wildebeest and so he resides at the top of this branch, uh, this little bitty Charlie Brown looking rinky dink branch that's just about to break, just about to fall and so while all this is occurring, the king is out in the field and he looks and he can see the dust that's beginning to rise from the stampede and so uh, he hurries over and goes and tries to uh, save his son and realizes, sees his son there from afar off and he goes into the midst of the uh, stampede risking everything to save his son and he's able to grab his son and what he does is he goes up to the side of the ravine to the side of the canyon and he's able to get to the top of this this point and he's able to deliver his son from harm but just as he's doing that just as he releases his son one of the wildebeest passed by his horn catches his thigh and drags him right into the center of the stampede and everybody's looking on from afar off, the king, or excuse me, the, the, uh, the uh, members of the kingdom, and then obviously the uncle, and then the son is looking on. And they're looking on to see, uh, they can't see him, they're, they're not able to see him, where is he? And out of an act of desperation, the king jumps from the stampede, he jumps to the side of the ravine, and he's hanging on for dear life. He's broken, uh, he's been uh, battered, he's bleeding, he just, got, he just got run over by several hundred wildebeest, and so he's hanging, and everything within him wants to get to the top of that ravine, and so he begins begins to climb, but every, uh, every step that he takes, it gets, uh, it gets more inclined and more inclined to where it's almost a complete vertical uh, incline, and he's sitting there at the edge, and he's, he's out of strength, he's not able to make it to the top, but he's just inches away, and he looks up, and there he sees his brother, and his brother is sitting at the edge, and he says, brother, help me, and the brother reaches down, and he grabs his hands, and he leans in real close, and he whispers in his ear, Long live the king. And then he releases the grip, and there falls the king to his death and his demise. It's a sad story, 
Some of you are real emotional. I can tell you're into that story. If you're over the age of 35, you're like, man, that's a great story, Lamar. Where did you hear it? I heard it when I was a little boy on the TV. Everybody that's under the age of 35 know I'm talking about The Lion King. Greatest Disney movie in the history of Disney movies. I love The Lion King. I, I mean, I remember growing up, I used to always want, want to watch The Lion King. And uh, The Lion King has a lot to teach us. It's a story of victory. It's the story of uh, a son's rise to prominence in, in, in spite of adversity. It kind of sounds like the life of Joseph. But nonetheless, I'd have you believe that at its core, The Lion King is actually a story about ultimate betrayal. The Lion King story is, is a story about ultimate betrayal. Scar betrays the trust of the king, betrays the trust of the kingdom, betrays the trust of Simba, and no one really knows about it, and, and Scar rises to prominence, and so the Lion King is a story of ultimate betrayal. Thank you for giving me that privilege and that opportunity to share that story, because I've always wanted to fit that story into a sermon, so thank you for letting me live up to that. Uh, we watch Disney movies. Uh, those of us that grew up watching Disney movies, man, I tell you, sometimes they're way far-fetched. And although we enjoy it, although Disney paints uh, the life of different characters that they portray, they portray it to be several different things. A lot of the times it's really contrary to Scripture. And so I'm not against Disney movies. There's a movement that's against Disney movies. Those people are weird. Those people are homeschooled. I'm not against Disney movies. <laughs> I was homeschooled, so. <laughs> but nonetheless, it kind of paints a, a funny picture, but betrayal is a serious thing, isn't it? Just, I'm just curious, how many of you have ever suffered from betrayal? How many of you have ever been betrayed? How many of you have ever been betrayed? Maybe uh, someone's betrayed your trust. Someone has spoken ill of you. Maybe uh, you've been um, privy to some information about someone who is talking bad about you while you were not there. Anybody? How many of you have ever betrayed anybody? How many of you have ever betrayed somebody in this room? Betrayal is a serious thing, and it's something, we're going to learn this in just a couple of minutes out of uh, Luke chapter number 17, but it tra- betrayal is guaranteed. It's something that is guaranteed. If you have not been betrayed or you're not going through a betrayal, mark it down, it's going to come eventually. Everybody is going to suffer from betrayal, and so no doubt all of us can think back to times in our life where we've experienced moments of betrayal, and uh, I'd have you believe that one of the most difficult things that you can overcome is when someone betrays your trust. Would you agree with that? One of the most difficult things to overcome is when someone betrays your trust. And so in light of our study through the life of Joseph, can we all agree that Joseph suffered some major betrayal? Matter of fact, really with every major catastrophe in the life of Joseph, you find betrayal at its core. At its root, you've got Joseph in our text in Genesis chapter number 37. Joseph, we're going to learn, is betrayed by his brothers. Fast forward and Joseph is betrayed by Potiphar's wife and the trust of Potiphar. Fast forward a little farther, he gets thrown into prison. Who betrays him? The butler betrays him, forgets about him. All throughout the life of Joseph, he's facing major, major points of betrayal. So as we pick up in our story in Genesis chapter number 37, Joseph is about 20 years old, and so his father's already displayed his favoritism for Joseph above all his other sons, and that's really rooted and grounded in his favoritism for Rachel uh, over Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah. We know that. We read in Genesis chapter number 25 that uh, Laban, de- uh, he, uh, Laban deceives Jacob, and really he had his eye on Rachel, the fair-eyed one, the pretty one, but he ended up getting Leah. We know the story. We won't revisit that, but nonetheless, this is kind of just a uh, non-ending cycle in the life of Jacob, favoritism that he shows for his family members. And so, uh, nonetheless, Jacob shows this favoritism for Joseph. And so he's favored by his earthly father. But then we read two weeks ago in the life of Joseph, the dreams that he had and the provision of God upon Joseph's life and how he showed Joseph those visions were through the visions in the night, through his dreams. So we could conclude that uh, Joseph is favored by his earthly father, but he's also favored by his heavenly father. I'm not talking about above everybody else, but humanly speaking, when you look at the prominence of Joseph, at least the potential prominence of Joseph in what he portrayed in his dreams, God's got something special for Joseph. He's got a plan that's bigger than Joseph. He's got an agenda that he wants to see accomplished in Joseph's life, and Joseph tells his brothers about it. So now there are his brothers. How would you like to be the brothers of Joseph? Favored by your father, earthly father, and then you're favored by your heavenly father. They've got big, uh, God's got big plans for Joseph. And so that led to a distaste, nay, a hatred in the life of his brothers for their brother Joseph. They hated him. In Genesis chapter number 35, it says three times, they hated him, they hated him more, and they hated him yet the more. Three times in one chapter it says that they despised 
Joseph. They hated him. And this hatred boiled deep within, and it eventually leads to the betrayal of their own flesh and blood, their own brother, Joseph. And this betrayal is the betrayal that started the domino effect in the betrayals that Joseph would face in his life. He faced many betrayals, many difficult trials and circumstances, but it really all started in Genesis chapter number 35 with this pivotal betrayal in the life of Joseph, and it came at the hand of his brothers, his own brothers, flesh and blood, betraying the trust of Joseph. Do you want the good news or the bad news? I'll give you the good news first. This is going to be the shortest message I've ever preached in my life. This is going to be the shortest message I've ever preached in my life. Here's the bad news. This is going to be the longest introduction that you've ever heard in your life. So when you take a long introduction and you pair it with a short sermon, you get a regular sermon. Okay, so we're not going to get it. No, I'm just kidding. I'll try to be brief tonight, but I need to lay some groundwork before we go into the message tonight. What I have tonight is very practical, very applicable, but it's something that we often miss. Again, we've all suffered from betrayal, but I'd like to lay some groundwork in Genesis chapter number 37 as we look at this first betrayal in the life of Joseph, and then we'll make some brief application towards the end. So can you buckle up and get ready, because we're not going to get into the message for a while, but please don't tune me out. If I lay this groundwork and no one's listening and paying attention, you'll miss the application. But if you listen... I want us to be students of the word of God. I don't want to just get up and give you a bunch of points that are alliterated. I want you to learn something about the life of Joseph because we're going to find out in the end that this is going to teach us something about Jesus Christ. Would you say that that's important? Everything in the word of God, whether it is in the Old Testament or the New Testament, is centered around Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, it's either pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, it's pointing at Jesus Christ. And then as you progress through the uh, New Testament, it's pointing back to the cross of Jesus Christ. So everything in the Word of God is there for our learning. But more, more specifically and more importantly, it's to teach us something about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Joseph is going to do that. And so a couple of things that I'd like to do tonight, just by way of introduction. Okay, You'll know when I get to the sermon when I say point number one. Okay, But just by way of introduction, a few things that I'd like us to notice about Joseph's betrayal. Number one, Jacob's command. I want you to notice Jacob's command. We talked about this a few weeks back. Uh, They're in this wicked place called Shechem. And I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this land of Shechem and how they had absolutely no business being in the land of Shechem. But are you really surprised? I mean, Jacob, all throughout the life of Jacob, he's deceiving, he's lying. His name means liar, deceiver, one who comes from behind for an advantage. And so it really shouldn't come as any surprise, but nonetheless, they're there in the land of Shechem rather than going to the land of Seir like he committed to his brother Esau. So they're there in the land of Shechem, and any time that Shechem is referenced in the Bible... It's always in a negative light. Shechem is a wicked place. And uh, in Genesis chapter number 34, we read about the defilement of Dinah. The defilement of Dinah. They get there to the land of Shechem, and the king's son of Shechem sees Dinah coming from afar off, and he gets gets his eye on, on Dinah, and the Bible says that he forcibly takes her. He rapes the daughter of Jacob. But that was just the beginning of the wickedness that Jacob's house would experience in the land of Shechem because the brothers, uh, namely the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, get word about what happened to their sister and they go in and they maliciously murder every single man there in the land of Shechem. And so Shechem is a wicked place and the, the uh, sons of Jacob have a history in the land of Shechem. And so, again, this is Jacob's command. So one day, Jacob, this is after all this had occurred, uh, the sons of Jacob are out in the land, uh, and they're out in the field, rather, and they're tending to the sheep. And so the Bible doesn't tell us why Jacob uh, is concerned about his sons, but I'd have you believe it's probably because of their history in the land of Shechem. How many of you have that one kid that you need to keep your eye on? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. For mine, it's easy. My son, no, but uh, you know, he's, he's probably thinking about his sons there in the land of Shechem, and so he takes his son of promise and says, I'm not too sure about what's going on, but I want you to go out and I want you to check on your brothers there in the land of Shechem. And so again, uh, Jacob sends his, his uh, son, uh, Joseph, to check on his brothers there in the land of Shechem to check up on them and see how they're doing. And so we have the command of Jacob, Jacob's command. Number two, I want you to notice Joseph's compliance. Joseph's compliance, look at verse number 14 through 17, it says, And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren, and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? 
And he said, I seek my brethren, tell me, I pray thee, where, thy, uh, where, thy feed, where they feed their, uh, their flocks. And the man said, they are departed hence, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in, 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 uh, in Dothan. And so Jacob gives the command and Joseph complies. It says, here am I. He complied. And, and uh, I don't want to labor long on this because I, I, I thought about doing a whole little point uh, system under the, under the uh, point number of uh, Joseph's compliance. I don't want to labor too long on this, but I'd have you know, it's not just something you need to read over in Scripture. I want you to think about it. I don't want you to just, just uh, glaze through verses 14 through 17. Joseph's compliance took great courage. It took great courage. This is the same brothers that voiced their disapproval in Genesis chapter number 35. So he already knows that they hate them. He already knows that because of their hatred for the men of Shechem that they went in and massacred uh, uh, the, all the men of Shechem. So this bro- the brothers that are mentioned in Genesis uh, chapter 35 through 37 are the ones that are residing. And those brothers are the ones that hated Joseph. And Jacob gives the command to Joseph, and Joseph complies. That was an act of great courage, but not only that, it was an act of complete obedience. It was an act of complete obedience because you'll see that he goes into the land of Shechem, goes to check up on his brothers, and are his brothers in Shechem? They're not. Put yourself in the life of Joseph. You're going to check up on brothers that you know hate you and are capable of doing some incredibly wicked things, and then you go into the land of Shechem and realize you're not, they're not there. You know what you're going to do? This is what I'm going to do. Not here. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go tell dad, hey dad, you told me to go to Shechem, check up on the bros, they're not there, not my problem anymore. But he understood that his responsibility was to fully comply with his father's command and so he goes an extra step further and he searches out for his brothers there in the land of Dothan and finds his brothers. That was an act of great courage and it was an act of complete obedience. That's Joseph's compliance. Number three, I want you to notice the brother's callousness. The brother's callousness in verse number 18. Look at verse number 18. And when they saw him from afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And so as they see Joseph coming from afar off, they begin to conspire against him and devise this plan to kill Joseph. Their hatred was so deep within themselves for Joseph that it led to a desire to see him dead. We're going to talk about envy here in just a moment. But their hatred was so kindled within themselves, it was so deep that they wanted to see not just the deterrence of Joseph, they wanted to see the destruction of Joseph. They wanted to see him dead. Isn't it crazy to think how low someone will go when they have a calloused heart? We talked about it a second ago. We've been, we've been betrayed. Most people have been betrayed. We've been done wrong. And that comes from a calloused heart. Someone who does not, they're not concerned with your well-being, they're not concerned with your life, and, and the callousness of someone's heart can cause you to do some crazy, wicked things. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. So a few things I want you to notice about his callousness. Uh, the brother's callousness. First, the plot to kill Joseph. We talked about it, I won't labor long, but we understand that there was no room for negotiation on behalf of Joseph. Uh, they didn't want to hear his side of the story. They didn't care about what Joseph had to say. All they knew is Joseph is favored by uh, the, his, his earthly father. He's favored by his heavenly father. He has what we want. We don't like him, and we want to see him dead. Not only that, uh, letter B, the proposal of Reuben. I want you to see this, the proposal of Reuben. The scripture tells us that Reuben proposes an alternative plan that involves sparing the life of Joseph while still scratching the itch for his brothers to stick it to Joseph. And so the Bible also tells us that Reuben intends to return after his brothers have left the scene and he'll return and he's going to go back and he's going to get his brother out of the pit and return him unto his father. And so a lot of us can look at the life of Reuben and we kind of look at it through the life of uh, the lens of, man, what a good older brother. What a nice older brother looking out for the well-being of his little brother Joseph. How many of you have ever seen the ballad of little Joe? It's a veggie tale story. All my sermons reference VeggieTales story. I was homeschooled, okay, so that's all I was allowed to watch was, was VeggieTales. If you've not seen it, you should see it. It's a great, great show, great movie, but it depicts the life of Joseph, and it really kind of, uh, it, it leans heavily on, on the uh, illusion that, that Reuben was a well-meaning older brother that was looking out for the well-being of his younger brother, but I'd have you believe that jo- uh, Reuben was just as wicked and defiled as the rest of his brothers. According to our passage, we're going to find out here in just a second, but his intentions were not pure. He was not looking out for the well-being of Joseph. Rather, he was looking out for the well-being of himself. 
He looked at this opportunity and he knows his father. He's got a little bit more discernment and wisdom about him than his other brothers. He knows his father and so he knows his father's love for Joseph. So here's where his mind goes. His mind goes to the life of Joseph being spared. But if he comes back after his brothers have already left the scene and delivers his brother to their father, the son whom Joseph or Jacob loved, his beloved son, I'm going to get brownie points with dad. Maybe I'll be the favored son. Maybe this will be my opportunity to get it in with my father, and my father will look at me with the same kind of favoritism that he looks at Joseph with. And so Joseph, understand that uh, Reuben's intentions were not pure. He was looking at it through the lens of what this could do for his social status. And so they uh, listen to the proposal of Reuben, and that's exactly what they do. They throw him into this pit. And the Bible says, I want you to notice this, this, this I, I missed this until I was reading some commentaries this week, and it really painted in a nice picture for me to understand. They threw him in an empty pit with no water. Does the scripture say that? It says it was an empty pit with no water. And again, we kind of have this view, maybe it's because of corrupted VeggieTale movies that you've watched as a kid like me. Maybe it's a flannel graph that you read. How many know what flannel graph is? I'm just, okay, good. I'm, <clears throat> We don't do flannel graph anymore. Why not? Anyways, and so maybe it's, it's through the uh, lens of a, a flannel graph lesson where you see Joseph's brothers and they're lowering him, lowering him on a rope into the... Have you ever seen that before? Maybe you've seen a picture of his brothers lowering him into the pit. The Bible says that they threw him into the pit. The pit had no water. The pit was a big pit, had no water, so therefore we can conclude that this was a very physical, malicious act against the life of Joseph. Carelessness, callousness, they didn't care about his physical, emotional, they didn't care about anything, any of the well-being of Joseph, they did not care about because of their calloused heart. They threw him into the pit, and the Bible says the pit had no water. So I want you to get your mind around that. This caused some serious physical damage. Am I reading between the lines of Scripture too much? Would we all agree with that? And I believe that the reason the Bible does that, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I believe that the reason the Bible draws the conclusion that the pit was empty because they want us to see a picture of the coming of Jesus Christ. Again, Joseph is a picture of the life of Christ. Did they give any care for our Savior when they put him on the cross? Absolutely not. And so they throw Joseph into this pit, and it caused some serious physical damage. But then I want you to notice the lack of remorse afterwards. They throw their brother their own flesh and blood into this pit. And then what do they do afterwards? Time to eat lunch. Let's get a bite. What callousness. I mean, I'm just going to be honest. Whenever you're living, uh, you're living your Christian life and you at least have somewhat of the leading of the Holy Spirit, when you sin, you at least feel bad about it. But what kind, of, what kind of level do you need to reach spiritually where you begin to sin and you don't feel any remorse after you've participated in sin? Callous heart. So how can someone be so disinterested with the well-being of another human being without even batting an eye and administering such pain and trauma? I'll tell you how. It's a calloused heart. So then we see the plan of Judah. The plan of Judah, where Reuben had his status in mind with his proposal. Judah had his pocketbook in mind when he thought up his plan. So again, they're, they're, sitting, there and, uh, they're, they're sitting there and they throw Joseph into this pit and then they eat some lunch. I, I believe they're eating Taco Bell because that's the devil's food. What in Chick-fil-A? Because Chick-fil-A is the Lord's food and anybody that's going to participate in that kind of act and eat Chick-fil-A, they'll probably burn and die. But uh, it's, it's, no, I'm just kidding. But they're, they're sitting there and they're eating and, and Judah sees the Midianites coming from afar off and he says, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't instead of throwing him into this pit, why don't we, uh, and leaving him for dead, why don't we take him out of this pit and why don't we sell him and see what we can get out of Joseph? Why don't we sell him to these Midianites? I heard that they pay good money for slaves and they have different, uh, uh, they have different, uh, t- uh, uh, different camp, uh, caravans that go around and they pick up slaves, they have slaves, so maybe they'll give us some good money for them. And so Joseph, or excuse me, uh, uh, Judah proposes this plan to sell him to the Midianites. Then we see the panic of Reuben. The panic of Reuben. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but we can insinuate that Reuben was not there when all this took place. Reuben had either left the scene or for some reason Reuben wasn't there while they were having this little, what is it called, quinceanera or siesta. Under the, under the tree, sitting there eating lunch, and Reuben is not there, he's not present, because the Bible says, look at, uh, uh, look at uh, verse number 30, and Reuben returned into the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes, and he returned unto his brethren and said, the child is not, and I, whither shall I go? So they conspire to kill Joseph, Reuben interjects with his status in mind, 
They eat lunch. Judah says, let's sell him. And then Reuben returns and sees that Joseph is gone and assumes the worst. And what's the first thing out of Reuben's mouth? My, my, poor, my poor brother. My poor brother. Oh, what did you guys do to my... No. What does he say? He says, the child is not, and whither I, whither shall I go? He's worried about himself. You get, kind of get in the picture. I, I'm, I'm trying to draw a conclusion that we already know. They hated him. They despised him. Their hearts were calloused, and they despised their own flesh and blood. They despised Joseph. So we've got Jacob's command. We've got Joseph's compliance, the brother's callousness, and fourthly, I want you to notice the brother's false communication. The brother's false communication. Everything unfolds, and Joseph is on a one-way trip there to the land of Egypt, and what are they going to do? Remember, this is, this is Jacob's son of promise. I, I know that dad's old, but uh, he's going to kind of notice if Joseph is gone. He's going to kind of notice if his favorite son is gone. So what are we going to do? And so they get this idea, and we know the story. It's very elementary, but I just want to highlight it for just a moment. They get their coat of many colors, and someone gets the idea. What we're going to do is we're going to take his precious coat of many colors. Someone go get me a knife and some shears, and we're going to take a goat, uh, probably one of Lamar's precious goats, and we're going to slay. Did you guys know I got rid of my goats? I got rid of my goats. They tasted delicious. But anyways, they uh, get this plan. They're going to defile. They're going to manipulate their father, Jacob, into believing that his son of promise is dead. And so they stage the death of their brother. But then we look at how they bring it to their father, and Jacob, uh, their father Jacob, in Genesis chapter thir- uh, verse number 32 of Genesis chapter number 37. And they sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found... Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. <laughs> hey, Dad, um, you know, we were just kind of out just chilling in the land of Shechem, and we noticed this coat of many colors, and I don't know, what do you, it's kind of got blood on it, so there's, there, there's that, but uh, I don't know, does this look like Joseph's coat to you? <laughs> can you, can you kind of get the sarcasm, uh, the deception and the manipulation? They knew full and well uh, the only coat of many colors is Joseph's, but none, nonetheless, uh, sin will make you do some dumb things. And then one, one lie will end up, end up being another lie and another lie and another lie until eventually you're just living a life of just constant deception and manipulation. And so they bring it to their father. And what's interesting to note, I want you to jot down Genesis chapter number 27, verse 16 through 19. We won't go there. We went there a couple of months ago or a couple of weeks ago. It feels like months have been forever in the book of Genesis. But we went there a couple of weeks ago. And this is the story of when Jacob went in and deceived his father Isaac into giving him the blessing rather than Esau. So he goes in and he appears to his blind father and he uh, uh, presents himself with the coat of another animal, presents himself as the hairy Esau, and he deceives his father into giving him the blessing. What goes around, finish it. What goes around, cups. Here's the Bible term. What you reap, you will sow. What you reap, you will sow. And here's Jacob. We can kind of feel bad for him. He has to mourn the loss of his son, but he's reaping what he's sown. He's getting his just desserts. What goes around comes around. And so we see Jacob's command. We see Joseph's compliance. The brother's callousness. The brother's false communication. Number five, I want you to notice Jacob's contrition. Jacob's contrition. Look at verse number 24. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, and he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I will go down unto the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And so the Bible tells us that when Jacob gets word of Joseph's death, that he rents his clothes and begins to mourn. And the devastation is poured out publicly as, a, uh, uh, publicly as Jacob mourns the loss of his beloved son, his precious son of promise, Joseph. And then we read in Genesis chapter, I believe it's uh, number 45. Don't go there, but this is some almost 20 years after the supposed death of Joseph that he's still mourning the loss of his son. He's still mourning the loss of his son, Joseph. This, this affected him in a big way. So Jacob's command, Joseph's compliance the brother's callousness, the brother's false communication, and then Jacob's contrition. Congratulations. You made it through the introduction. All that was pre-work. <clears throat> and I, ho- I hope you were listening. I hope you tuned in. All that was pre-work because I'd like us to take a look at Genesis chapter number 37 and get into the classroom of this passage. And I want us to learn something about this area of betrayal in the life of Joseph and eventually we'll find in the life of Jesus Christ. 
Look at Genesis chapter number 37. A few things quickly and we'll be done. I want you to notice, number one, the power of envy. The power of envy. Look at Acts chapter number 7, verse 8 and 9. You say, where are we going? Why are we going to the New Testament? Go to Acts chapter number 7. We're going to look at verse 8 and 9. Uh, this is the New Testament reference to this Old Testament account that we just read. And so Acts chapter number 7 and verse 8 and 9, it says, And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So, and so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. Look at, look at this. And the patriarchs moved with what? Moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. As we look at our passage tonight and we see uh, the acts of the brothers of Joseph, no doubt our minds cannot begin to comprehend the kind of wickedness and twistedness someone has to be involved in to betray their own family. How on earth could someone be so low that they'd betray their own flesh and blood? How on earth could the brothers of Joseph do this to Joseph? Acts chapter 7 verse 8 9 tells us, envy, envy, the power of envy. What led to the demise of Joseph and the, and the beginning of this domino effect that would affect him for the rest of his life was rooted and grounded in the spirit of envy. Joseph really was devoured by an evil beast. It was the evil beast of envy. Man is full of several different emotions, and we understand that man feels emotions, and I, I don't want to belittle emotions. I think that emotions are part of God's creation in us. How many of you feel love? We all feel, some of you don't, I know you don't. <clears throat> we all feel love, we feel hatred, we feel despair, we feel depression. We feel several different emotions, but I'd have you believe that one of the most powerful emotions that we experience as human beings is the spirit, the emotion of envy. The spirit and the emotion of envy is an absolutely powerful emotion kind of like poison, isn't it? Envy will make you do some dumb things. Genesis chapter number one, the sin of Eve. Eve sinned in the garden. Why? Envy. Cain killed his brother Abel. Why? Envy. Joseph had Uriah killed in battle. Why? Envy. All throughout scripture, almost every sin that is recorded in the word of God is rooted and grounded in the wicked emotion of envy. Joseph's brothers, look at this, envied him before they hated him. They looked at the success of Joseph and they looked at the prominence of Joseph and they said, how come he has what I don't have? How come he's got what I don't got? What do I need to do to get what he has? The poison of envy ran through the veins of the sons of Jacob, so much so that it grew from envy to hatred and before long what they thought in their hearts, they put to action with their hands. Why? Envy is powerful emotion and it will, it will make you do some dumb things. The power of envy. And number two, I want you to notice the pretense of morality. The pretense of morality. I think of Reuben. We mentioned him a moment ago. I think of Reuben. He's not so bad, is he? We look at the, uh, we look at the actions of Reuben and we can come to the conclusion that Reuben's not, not so bad. You know, what that, you know why we do that? We do that throughout scripture. and We begin to look at Bible characters and the offenses of the Bible characters that we look at. Even uh, beyond the realm of the word of God, we look at the offenses of others and what do we do? We categorize sin. We categorize sin into what we deem as really wicked, not so bad, and kind of wicked. We categorize sin based off of our own moral compass. We look at the offenses of others and the offenses of ourselves and we begin to play the way game. My offenses are not as bad as so-and-so. The things that I participate in are not as bad as this. And you gotta understand, Lamar, this action that I'm participating in is actually not that wicked. Listen, don't call sin anything but sin. Don't call sin anything but sin. Well, Lamar, how do we know what sin is? The Bible, the word of God. We understand that the Bible is full of instructions, it's, it's full of do's and don'ts, it's full of uh, uh, admonishments. It's, the Bible is very clear on depicting what is sin and what is not sin. Don't call what is not sin, or don't call any sin anything else other than what the Bible calls it sin. And again, we have this moral compass where we begin to categorize sin based off of our own morality when the Bible says that we ought to follow the word of God and do everything according to the word of God to the T. None of you are in, in, in or most of you are not in my uh, Sunday school class, but we are looking at the life of J uh, Joshua, and Joshua chapter 1, verse number 8 says, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to 
all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Uh, there's a bumper sticker that's not popular really around here, but it's popular back, back where I'm from, and it says, The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. How many of you ever heard that? Can I tell you something? The Bible says it, and it doesn't matter if you believe it, it's settled. The Bible says it, it doesn't matter of your conclusion, it doesn't matter of your opinion. If the Bible says it, it's very clear that it is sin. And James chapter 4, verse number 17 says, Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, what? To him it is sin. The Bible says it, it's settled. And so Reuben wanted to cast him into the pit. What about Judah? What about Judah? <clears throat> he wanted to sell him for profit. And again, we can buy into the lie that Reuben isn't as bad as Judah, and Judah's not as bad as the rest of his brothers, but I'd have you believe they were all wicked. They were all wicked. Their, their intentions were not to deter the life of Joseph, but to destroy it. They had a calloused heart. A major deterrence in the life of true spiritual revival is the illusion that our inward sin isn't as bad as the preacher makes it out to be. I didn't get the response I was hoping for. A major deterrence in the life of, a true, of true spiritual revival is the illusion that our inward sin isn't as bad as the preacher makes it out to be. How come we are not experiencing revival? It is because when the preacher preaches, thus saith the Lord, we begin to use deductive reasoning on what we deem as acceptable and unacceptable. When the preacher preaches, thus saith the Lord, we begin to look at what he's saying in the lens of what you deem as acceptable and not acceptable. My moral compass says that that's really not that bad. My moral compass says that that sin I'm participating in really isn't that bad. It's not sin. I wouldn't call it sin. I really don't like that word sin. If the Bible deems it as unacceptable, guess what? It's unacceptable. And a major deterrence in the life of this church and other churches all around is the illusion that we buy into listening to the word of God preached and deciding before anything is ever mentioned from scripture that we're okay. The song we sing all the time uh, at camps, we sing it, uh, I sing it at camps, I sang it just a couple of days ago last week at, uh, at the harvest party. I'll say yes, Lord, yes to your will and to your way. I'll say yes, Lord, yes. I will trust you and obey. When your spirit speaks to me with my whole heart, I'll agree. And my answer will be yes, Lord, yes. Every time you come into the doors of this church or anybody, every time that you come in to your prayer closet, you begin to open the word of God, your intention should be what it says, I will do. What it says, I will do. Complete obedience. When's the last time that we got so disgusted with our sin that we hit the altar and poured out our heart before the Lord and asked him for forgiveness? For some of us, it's been a very long time. When's the last time that you got so disgusted with your sin that you couldn't even sit where you're sitting and you had to go do business with God? Goes back to that moral compass we were talking about. What sin put Jesus on the cross? Was it a category of sins or was it all sins? I know that the Bible does talk about things that are an abomination to, to God. I know that the Bible pastor's been talking about the unforgivable sin, right? And, and I know that there are different things from God's point of view and God's perspective that he deems as uh, not acceptable or unacceptable. It's all wicked, but nonetheless, he views things as wicked and an abomination and so forth. But I can tell you what right now, if we would become uh, uh, sensitive to the fact that every sin that we committed is a sin that is nailed to the cross, it would change our perspective on sin completely. When's the last time that we hit the altar in such conviction over what might not be that bad? All sin is bad. Everything that is recorded in Scripture, anything that we do contrary to that is a sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. The power of envy, the pretense of morality, number three, the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. I almost skipped this point. I was going to skip this point and kind of go on to the next point because I didn't want to draw uh, conclusions where there is no conclusions. I didn't want to read between the lines of Scripture. But after looking and praying about it, uh, we, we know the verse. For the wages of sin is, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The context in that Scripture is talking about what? Salvation, right? talking about salvation. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm so thankful for the payment that was paid in my stead, in your stead, through the blood of Jesus Christ. But that verse also teaches us something very important about the penalty of sin, even on this side of the cross. And it teaches us this. Sin separates you from God. 
In eternity, if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's a long separation. For the rest of eternity, you will be separated from God. But on this side of the cross and on this side of heaven, any time that we participate in wickedness, any time that we sin, it separates us from fellowship with the King. Any time that we participate in wicked, heinous acts, it, it, it causes us to be separated in fellowship with God. <clears throat> you cannot be a follower of God. You cannot walk circumspectly to his will, live in sin, and not, not feel his presence. Do you know what I'm saying? How many of you have ever been there before? In the valley is a, a term that we use. You're in the valley. You're participating in sin, and it is separating you from fellowship and from fellowship with God. That is a dark place to be. That is one of the hardest places to be. You cry out to God and you feel like he doesn't hear you. You feel, although he promises never to leave us or forsake us, sometimes it really doesn't feel like he's there. Why? Because of sin. He's perfect. He can't look on sin. So much so that he had to turn his back on his son when he died on the cross to save us from our sins. Our king and our savior cannot be in the presence of sin. Therefore, when we are participating in open sin or private sin, it breaks fellowship with the king. Joseph is an Old Testament picture of who? Jesus Christ. Joseph is an Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ and the wickedness of Joseph's or uh, the wickedness of Jacob's son uh, sons separated them from fellowship with Joseph. And as believers sin separates us with fellowship with God. Now I believe in once saved always saved. I got to say this. I believe in once saved always saved and if salvation were something that you could lose, I'd have lost it 12 times today. Salvation is forever. It's something that, uh, that, that's heresy. And I believe that if you go into salvation not believing that it's eternal and it's, and it's permanent, that you might not really be saved. But nonetheless, salvation is permanent. Once saved, always saved. And I, I hold to that doctrine. We hold to that doctrine. Salvation is not something that you can lose. But when we live a life of wickedness, adhering to the desires of the flesh, it separates us with fellowship with the king. So I'm not saying that anybody that's participating in sin is not saved, but I am saying it's a dark and a lowly place to be when you know that you're saved and you know that you're on your way to heaven, but you don't get to fellowship with your savior. The penalty of sin, I want you to notice the providence of God. Number four, the providence of God. The series is called Joseph, a story of God's sovereignty. And with every message that I've preached thus far in this series in the life of Joseph, we found our way back to Genesis chapter number 50 and verse 16. And uh, I'm just going to give you a little spoiler alert. We're probably going to reference it every single message because it's the theme verse in the life of Joseph. And we know it. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This was just the first installment of betrayal that Joseph would experience. And in the weeks to come, we'll find that just about every uh, everywhere that Joseph finds himself with every dilemma and every difficult circumstance, he faces betrayal yet again. I referenced it in the beginning. Luke chapter 17, verse number one, it says, Then said he unto his disciples, this is Jesus, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. And woe unto him, though whom they come. You say, okay, Lamar, I've, I've not experienced betrayal like you're talking about. The Bible says it's coming. I've not had my trust betrayed by anybody to that extent that you're talking about. It's coming. It can be guaranteed, mark it down. If you're a Christian, if you're born again and you're a baptized believer, the Bible says that you will experience betrayal. Someone is going to be, betray your trust. Someone is going to speak ill of you behind your back. You're going to experience betrayal. It's guaranteed, mark it down. But if you've learned anything thus far in this series in the life of Joseph, I hope you've learned something about the amazing sovereign hand of God that we serve. Throughout every difficult trial and circumstance in the life of Joseph, through every betrayal that Joseph would face, it didn't faze God because God was in complete control. Why? He's sovereign. And I don't know what you're going through tonight. I don't know what series of betrayals that you've experienced. If you haven't, it's coming, but just know this. God is always in complete control. Isn't that a comforting feeling to know that the God that we serve, although we are promised to face adversities, he promised never to leave us nor forsake us, and he is in complete control. So betrayal after betrayal, God prov uh, providential, God's providential hand was moving in the life of Joseph. Lastly tonight, I want you to notice, number five, the picture of Jesus Christ. The picture of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I told you in week number one that we would uh, target the life of Joseph, but it would be such a tragedy if we progressed through the life of Joseph, learned about all of his trials and circumstances, learned about the life of Joseph, but never touched the beautiful picture that Joseph paints of the coming New Testament Jesus Christ. 
written through all, all throughout the life of Joseph, we see uh, almost, almost a perfect picture that paints the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that's going to come in the New Testament. Joseph was betrayed, thrown into uh, the pit, and sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was betrayed, thrown into prison, and sold for 30 pieces of silver. The intentions were not to deter Joseph, but to utterly destroy Joseph. And the intentions were not to deter the workings of Jesus Christ, but they wanted to utterly destroy him. Joseph could have thrown in the towel, but chose to persevere, knowing that God's providential hand was in control. At any point in the life of Joseph, humanly speaking, I can just be transparent with you, I would have called it quits in the pit. But at any point in the life of Joseph, he could have thrown in the towel and said, I'm done. That's enough. Last straw. Every time that I follow the moving of the Holy Spirit, every time that I follow God, it leads me into the pit, into the prison, Potiphar's wife. All throughout the life of Joseph, we see difficult trials and circumstances, and at any point, most of us would have thrown in the towel. But he chose to persevere. Why? He knew the providential hand of God was in control. And I think of the New Testament when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have called and they would have swooped in. They would have de- uh, de- devoured all the Roman soldiers and they would have delivered Jesus into the hands of, of God. But he didn't do that. He chose to persevere. Why? He knew God was in control. He's, he's, he was the Godhead. He was all God, but he was all man. And the Bible says the seven sayings of Christ were all from his human spirit, all from his human body. I thirst. And what else did he say? He says, Father, if it be thy will, what? Let this cup pass from me. But he chose to persevere because he was thinking of you, he was thinking of me, and he knew full and well that God, our Father, was in complete control. How many of you have experienced betrayal to the extent that Jesus experienced betrayal? Anybody? Here's a question. How many of you have betrayed Jesus? How many of you have betrayed Jesus today? Every day. Jesus didn't throw in the towel there at Calvary. And when we turn our backs on the Son of God on a daily basis, Jesus doesn't throw the clay away. (laughs) So how do we overcome betrayal? How do we overcome betrayal? Because it's going to happen. We read it in, in Luke chapter number 17. Betrayal will happen. Offenses will come. How do we overcome betrayal? Following the example of Joseph. Following the example of Jesus Christ. And here it is. You rest in the sovereign hand. We spoke about it in week number two. You rest in the sovereign hand to guide you, knowing full and well that he is in complete control. Way easier to say than it is to apply. Because what's the first thing that we want to do when someone betrays us? When someone betrays our trust, when someone does wrong against us and speaks bad behind our back, we want to get even. An eye for an eye. If Joseph would have had that spirit, he would have been left in the pit. And we wouldn't have the rest of Genesis that paints the picture of Jesus Christ. But Joseph's submission to the plan of God and knowing that God is sovereign and he is in complete control led to the prominence of Joseph. And can I tell you something? Trials will come. Difficulties will come. You will be betrayed. Offenses are going to come. You have to have dependence in the Savior in Jesus Christ. You have to have dependence in the sovereign hand of God to guide you knowing that he is in full control. And so tonight... We're going to have a brief moment of invitation, but it's simple. I know it's very practical. I told you that, but it's something that I feel like we miss because we're offended all the time. Difficult circumstances come our way every single day, and I'm just going to be honest with you. This is something that I fail at constantly because as soon as someone speaks ill of me, as soon as my trust is betrayed, I want to get even. So maybe tonight, here's what you need to do. You need to pray and ask God. Maybe in a situation specifically, pray and ask that God would help you persevere and depend upon him knowing that he is in full control. Maybe you've offended somebody. Maybe you've betrayed the trust of somebody. Go make it right. Go make it right. Resting on the sovereign hand of God and relying on him to guide you knowing that he is in full control. We'll stand to our feet and we'll have just a brief moment of invitation and then after the invitation, we'll go into our prayer time tonight. And so if